Hope died the first time people laid eyes on Boise City, Oklahoma. It was founded on fraud. Even the name itself was a lie. Boise City. The promoters pronounced it from the French words le bois, trees. Except there was not a single tree in Boise City, nor was there a city. But that didn't stop the Southwestern Immigration Development Company from selling lots at $45 apiece in a phantom town in the newly opened panhandle of Oklahoma. On Boise City's imaginary streets, the buyers found stakes in the ground and flags flapping in the wind. No railroads, no tracks, no plans for railroads, no fine houses, no businesses. Worst of all, the company did not even own the land it had sold. sturdy elm with a branch strong enough to hold a swing. And she didn't want to live in a hole in the ground with the snakes and tarantulas and sleeping so near to the stink of burning cow manure. Nor did she want to live in a sod house. The prairie grass stacked like ice blocks of an igloo. Soddy sleeped. Friends who had been in the panhandle long enough to make their peace with it told the Lucas folks that if a person wore out two pair of shoes in this country, they would never leave. You just had to give this land some time to make it work. Hazel's family arrived in no man's land in 1914, the peak year for homesteads of the 20th century. 53,000 claims made throughout the Great Plains. Every man a landlord but people were already fleeing the Northern Plains, barely five years after passage of the enlarged Homestead Act. The Northern Exodus should have been a warning that the attempt to cover the prairie with speckled cattle and festive cowboys, as General Sheridan had said, was a mistake.
Jesus' father, William Carlisle, known as Carly, built a dugout in 1915 for his family and started plowing the grass on his half-section, a patch of sandy loam. Without a windmill, the Lucas family would not have lasted a day, nor would have much of the high plains been settled. Windmills came west with the railroads, which needed large amounts of water to cool the engines and generate steam. Eventually, a nester could buy a windmill kit for about $75. Some people hit water at 30 feet, others had to go three times as deep. Once the aquifer was breached, a single wooden tower windmill could furnish enough water for most farming needs or a full section of land. The pumps broke down often and parts were hard to come by. But nesters were convinced they had tapped into a vein of life-giving fluid that would never give out. Don't just look at the grass and sky, they were advised. Imagine a vast lake just below the surface. In 
less than 10 years, they went from subsistence living to small business class wealth, from working a few hard acres with horses and hand tools, to being masters of wheat estates, directing harvests with wondrous new machines, at a profit margin in some cases that were 10 times the cost of production. school would not be paying a teacher for some time. 
she will vet you without pay. On September 14, 1930, a windstorm kicked up dust out of southwest Kansas and tumbled toward Oklahoma. By the time the storm cut a swath through the Texas Panhandle, it looked unlike anything ever seen before on the high plains. People called the government to find out what was up with this dirty, swirling thing in the sky. It wasn't a sandstorm, and it wasn't a hailstorm, though it certainly brought with it a dark, threatening sky. The strange thing about it, the Weather Bureau observer said, was that it rolled like a mobile hill of crud, and it was black. When it tumbled through, it carried static electricity enough to short out a car, and it hurt like a swipe of coarse-grained sandpaper on the face. This year fulfilled the long-ago warning that this arid land was not fit for normal agriculture. For the land had not just failed them, it had turned against them. In all of 1932, only 12 inches of rain fell in no man's land, barely half of what was needed as a rough minimum to produce a crop. The Lucas clan had kept food from the 1931 harvest, corn, maize, and wheat as insurance. By the fall of 1932, it was gone. Most families had a few row crops, but they were shriveled by the drought. The corrosive dust drifted thick enough to bury what little natural sod was left. With the grass under sand, there was no pasturage for animals. they had never seen before. Green worms, for example, on the fence, inside the house, over the porch, in the kitchen. The kids were not getting to bed without scanning for black widows or tarantulas. Hazel tried to get her cousins to see beyond 1932. Hazel believed in tomorrow perhaps more than any member of her extended family. This arid, tortured stretch of slow time it was just another trial, and then the purple verbena would bloom again, and the labors of no man's land can mean something, surely. The best way around the ubiquity of despair was to think of new life. Hazel wanted to start a family, but who could bring a baby into a world without hope? That's why you had to banish the negative thoughts, she said. She could will a positive day. The color would come back to life, and the water would turn. This drought could not last to 1933. The Weather Bureau started to classify dusters by visibility. A bad one, a storm in which a person could see no more than a quarter mile, was the worst. In 1932, there were 14 of these blinding storms. The biggest one in April, 
scared children of Hazel School in No Man's Land. The sky darkened as if the sun was blocked by an eclipse, and then, bang, bang, like gunshot, the school windows were blown out, shattered, and the dust poured in, covering desks, the floor, faces. It was gone in a minute, leaving glass shards on the floor and the hard, tiny particles of fields that had been plowed for wheat just a few years earlier. The land had become an active, malevolent force. If windblown dirt could break windows in school and make cattle go blind, what was next? Children were coughing, unable to sleep at night, happy until their guts hurt. Something was seriously wrong with this land, but nobody had any experience with it. Hazel Lucas Shaw watched the dust seep through the thinnest cracks in the walls of their own house spread over the china, into the bedroom, onto the sheets. When she woke in the morning, the only clean part of her pillow was the outline of her head. She taped all the windows and around the outer edge of doors, but the dust always found a way in. Her husband Charles had at last opened his business, a funeral home in the rental house. Town was supposed to be an easier place to live than a dead homestead to the south. But Boise City faced the same tormentor, the skies that brought no rain, only dirt. Some days Hazel put on her white gloves and sat at the table. A small act of defiance that seemed both silly and brave.
dinner, after clearing the floor, the dining table, the lampshades, and the kitchen counter of their daily desk at her home in Boise City, Hazel Shaw put on her white gloves and smiled. She had an announcement for her husband. I'm pregnant. The dust pressed hard on the high plains when Hazel Shaw traveled over the state of mind to Clayton to have her baby in the spring. Expectant mothers were told to stay in the hospital or a rest home for a month before their delivery date, and Hazel did not want to take chances. In town, Charles got his wife settled into a boarding house near the hospital. The doors and windows sealed three times over with sheets and tape to keep pregnant women from breathing particles. Charles returned to Boise City. After one week, a message came. It was time. He fired up the Model T and headed down the dirt road to New Mexico. The distance was barely 60 miles, but with the drifts, it could take half a day to make the drive. Even though the road was mostly straight, and he was driving on a cloudless day in April, Charles could not see more than a few car lengths ahead of him. He hung his head out the window to keep track of the roadside ditch, and in that way, he was able to follow a line toward Clayton. The message had been urgent. Hazel was starting her contractions. The baby was on its way. Sand heaped up and over the front of the car, swirling, creeping across the hood and into his lap. Anxious, thinking about the baby, worried about more drifts, he kept the speed up, pushing the car to its limit. When he came to a sudden swerve in the road, he was going too fast to correct his speed. The Model T teetered on two wheels and tipped on its side. For an instant, Shaw thought he was pinned. He was bruised and bleeding, but otherwise, all right. As he crawled out the window, he saw two wheels still spinning in the dust. He was able to pry the car out of the dust and tip it back, right side up. The engine started. He finished the drive and made it to St. Joseph's Hospital. Just as Hazel went into her high contractions, he walked a bruised, bleeding, dusty man, his eyelids dogged with mud, his fingers oiled and dirty. Hazel gave birth to a girl late that day, April 7, 1934. They named her Ruth Nell. She was plump and seemed healthy, but the doctor was concerned about taking her outside. The air was not safe for a baby. He ordered Hazel to stay in the hospital for at least 10 more days and remarked that the young family might want to consider moving out of no man's land. Others were buttoning up their homes and getting out before the dust ruined them. But the Lucas family had planted themselves in this far edge of the Oklahoma Panhandle at a time when there wasn't even a land office for nesters. They were among the first homesteaders. What would it mean for the pioneers to leave? And if they moved, it was not just the uncertainty of where to go and what to do, but also the feeling that they would never again own something. It was a big step down from working on your own quarter section to being adrift, with strangers and strangers staring at you like just another piece of open trash, saying you should be deported. 
At least here, a hungry man had pride of place and ownership. The family optimism ran through Hazel. She and Charles had opened a business in Morsey City and were not going anywhere. It was settled. No matter how ugly the year, no matter how dead the ground, how cashless the economy, new life in no man's land, Ruth now, was something that did not come around very often. The baby had to be savored and given a proper start at the place called home. She started to cough that winter, a baby's ragged hiccup, and it never stopped. Though Hazel Shaw had sealed the windows and doors and draped an extra layer of wet sheets over the openings, the dust still found Ruth Nell in her crib. It was oily and black some mornings, covering the baby's face. Her lips were frothed and mudded, her eyes red. Hazel lubricated her tiny nostrils with Vaseline and tried to keep a mask over her face, but the baby coughed or spit it off. A doctor took tests listened to the hurried heart. Ruth Nell was diagnosed with whooping cough. You should probably leave for the life of your baby, the doctor advised. South, 40 miles of Texoma, Lamise and Lucas was tucked into quilt layers inside the family home. The matriarch of the Lucas clan, Hazel's grandma, was coughing hard, just like the baby. Lamise was 80 years old, a widow for 21 years, with nine children, 40 grandchildren, 30 great-grandchildren. There was yet no social security. Lamise was in pain. The dust filtered into her home like a toxic vapor. She stopped eating. She grew weaker. Every time she brought her teeth together, she tasted grit. She withdrew deeper into the pile of quilts. The windows were sealed so tightly that light from her beloved land was completely blocked. It did not matter. She hated what no man's land had become. It was better to remember it as it was when she came into this country, arriving by covered wagon to Texoma and north through a half-section of their own, her and Jimmy, in the free kingdom of no man's land. As the dusters picked up, some of Lou's friends and even some of her own family believed the terrible storms were a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, a sign of the final days. But Lou knew better. There was nothing in her Bible that said the world would end in darkness and dust. first birthday, Hazel and her husband decided to flee, breaking the family apart for the health of the baby as the doctor had recommended. They had to get out now and risk the baby's life. By the time mother and daughter made it to Eden, the baby's cough was no better. Her little stomach must have been in acute pain for the hacking. She might have fractured her rib from coughing, for the baby cried constantly. At times, Hazel cried along with her and prayed intensely, hoping for relief. The doctors tried to clean out her lungs by suctioning some of the gum, but the baby would not settle. She coughed and cried, coughed and cried. The doctors confirmed Hazel's fears, 
Ruth Nail had dust pneumonia. She was moved into a section of the hospital in Eden that nurses called the Dust War. You must come, Hazel phoned her husband from the hospital in Eden. Come now. Ruth Nail looks terrible. I'm so afraid. Charles got in his car and plowed through the dust, trying to make his way east. He had his head out the window the whole way, as he had done a year earlier during Ruth's birth, but this time the sand blinded him. It was nearly 300 miles to Eden, a drive of two days, moving slowly along the ditch. He kept going at night with the headlights on. By the time Charles made it to St. Mary's Hospital, he was covered in dirt, his face black. He went to the dust ward. Hazel was crying. Ruth Nell had died an hour earlier. Back in no man's land, Hazel's grandma Lou stopped coughing. She had been running a fever for several days and could not hold down food. How's the baby, she asked. How is Ruth now? Any word? Her son had not heard. Lamisa turned away and closed her eyes. She would not see the homestead green again. Would not see any more of the starving land. She slipped under layers of quilt and took her last breath, dying within hours after her youngest great-grandchild fell. The family decided to stage a double funeral for baby Ruth Nell and the Lucas family matriarch. They would hold a ceremony at the church in Boise City, then proceed out of town to a family plot for burial on Sunday, April 14, 1935. The funeral procession started for Texoma, a long line of Model A's, Model T's, and pickup trucks following the hearse that carried Grandma Lou, all moving southeast in the embrace of the spring sunshine, the wind just a whispery breeze. The plan was to proceed over a dirt road 40 miles to Dixoma and bury Lou next to her husband Jimmy, near the ground they had worked so hard to cultivate, the place where members of the Lucas family became landowners for the first time. Hazel and Charles stayed behind. They had wanted to bury their baby in Boise City at the little cemetery at the edge of town. They were part of Cimarron County, more than most. Hazel had ridden horses over the land when it still had its grass. She knew most of the families and had taught many of their children. She had fallen in love with Charles at a Boise City track meet. They married in town, moved away, and then moved back, started a business. They had no intention of leaving, even if no man's land seemed cursed. The funeral procession, about 50 people in all, was six miles out of Boise City, still away from the Lucas family plot in Texoma. They had spread out some to let the dust from the chains dragging behind car axles settle. About 5.15 p.m., they saw the heap of half-mile-high dirt casting a shadow before it was on them, and it was so big, so dark, as to scare some of the procession into thinking there must have been an explosion somewhere. The cars were in the flattest part of No Man's Land, a place where a bowling ball on a hard pan was at its angle of repose. From this perspective, the mourners got a broad, expansive view of the Black Sunday Duster. The wall looked like it ran for several hundred miles east to west. The top was mostly flat, only slightly jagged at one end. The front was advanced by columns which billowed ahead of the main storm, 
as if clearing the ground. The Lucas clan argued over what to do. Some people wanted to turn the caravan around and go back to Boise City. Others, mainly older family members, thought it disrespectful to turn tail on the day of Grandma Lou's burial. As the roller approached, options disappeared. Like a wagon train on the old Santa Fe Trail, the cars in the procession closed ranks with the hearse in the middle and faced south, so the storm would not hit the engines first. As the big duster had bullied its way south, it had picked up more power and more density. There was probably no better source of pulverized sand than the arid, wasted wreckage of the high plains on this afternoon in April. The earth went black. Elkhart, the baby, was born without trouble, a black-eyed boy. 
When he came into the world, his first cry, forceful and loud, sounded to Hazel like the most lusty cheer of life she had heard in five years. They named the baby Charles for his father. He seemed robust with good color, good size. Now, where to live? Most of Hazel's family, her mother, Dee, a network of siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, young and old, were staying put in no man's land. Cimarron County was Lucas country, but in the last year it had been killed Grandma Lou and Baby Ruth now, and that made it impossible for Hazel to feel the same way about the land. Many other relatives were scared. They had no idea what was going on or where it would end. They looked around and assumed that the far corner of Oklahoma was becoming a desert. At the end of the year, she said goodbye to no man's land. Hazel put on her white gloves and brushed back tears, but said tomorrow would bring good things to the young family so it was not worth a long cry. She planned to leave with her dignity intact, like a lady. In 1914, at the age of 10, she had first seen the grassland, rising on her toes on the driver's seat of her daddy's covered wagon to get a look at this country. She would hold to the good memories. She and Charles and the baby closer to the center of Oklahoma, near her husband's family. There would be a place always in Hazel's memory of the blackest days in no man's land, but it would shrink because Hazel would force it down to size to allow her to live. Hazel Lucas Shaw had another child, Jean Beth, to go with her son, Charles Jr. Hazel's husband, Charles, died in 1971 of heart disease. After surviving the Dust Bowl and two subsequent tornadoes, Hazel outlived all her friends from Boise City. She died in 2003 at the age of 99. Though she never returned to live there, she told her grandchildren she always missed no man.